Welcome to the second series of Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. For the new listeners, to introduce myself, my name is Jimmy McLaughlin and I used to advise the Prime Minister on business, specialising in technology and entrepreneurship. This show is about speaking to entrepreneurs about what they think the future looks like and where they are planning to grow their companies over the next few years and what skills they'll need to achieve this. In reality, no one can be certain what the future holds, but entrepreneurs who are building the future seems a good place to start. For this series, I'm going to bring the Prime Ministerial briefings up to the front of the show and we'll be going right across the UK and beyond. Today, we are in Bristol talking to possibly the most exciting company in the UK that most people haven't heard of. It is backed by Silicon Valley venture capitalists Sequoia, who have also backed Apple, Google, WhatsApp, YouTube, Instagram and Zoom. Nigel Toome founded Graphcore in Bristol and is now employing 450 people across Beijing, Palo Alto, Oslo and Cambridge. One of the interesting parts of Nigel's journey is that he has built big businesses before and we learn how it was the Prince of Wales that led to him meeting his original co-founders. Graphcore builds the hardware chips that are going to be powering our future. You can hear in this interview why Nigel thinks the impact of artificial intelligence is both overblown and underestimated. How we should think of AI as a tool similar to how the spreadsheet impacted accountancy. Far from displacing jobs as many predicted, more people are now working in accountancy than ever before. How the most powerful skill is seeing across boundaries. How World War II impacted the development of the jet engine. Their plans to hire 200 people in the next year. Why Bristol is a brilliant differentiator to attract the best engineers. We also talk about Graphcore's plans to float on the stock market. And if that wasn't enough, we finish on a touch of geopolitics and digital nationalism. I am proud that Jimmy's Jobs of the Future is partnering with Octopus for the second series. Octopus is a group of companies which invests in the people, ideas and industries that will help change the world. It was founded in 2000 by Chris Hewlett and Simon Rogerson, who sat in a living room using the yellow pages to get their first client. Octopus now has 9 billion under management and has a wide array of interests from financial services to energy supply. Their mission from the outset has been to build a company that has a positive impact on the people it touches. Throughout this series, we'll be hearing in each episode how they make this happen. A good example is of their energy business, Octopus Energy. It is one of the fastest growing companies in the UK. It has grown from startup to more than 2 million customers over the last four years and is now the number one rated UK energy supply business and the only one to be recommended by which four years in a row. Welcome to today's show, Nigel. I just wanted to start off with a couple of quick fire questions. What was the work experience that you undertook at school and what was your first paid job? Gosh, work experience at school. I was very lucky, actually. My father was an electronics engineer, and at a certain point, he had his own business. So my first job was actually soldering circuit boards and doing electronics work. And that's really what got me the bug to then go on and study electronics at university. I think when I was 14, I was working on circuit boards and doing various kind of assembly of electronics equipment. It was quite a lot of fun. It's interesting how many people end up following their parents' careers. Those first steps are quite important, I find. So could you explain to us the story of how you came to found Graphcore? And obviously, you've been an entrepreneur a number of times, and it'd be great to hear about those stories as well, which led to you founding Graphcore. 
Yeah, so I guess after university, I went, like most people, off to be an engineer working on different projects. I worked out pretty quickly that I was more interested in how products come together rather than being in the weeds of actually designing at the detail level. I moved into what was called a field applications engineering role, which was sort of helping people understand how technology works and you know making it work in their applications. I ended up working for a what at the time was a very small uh, US Silicon Valley based chip company, a company called Altera. And I joined them and a About six months after I joined, they went public on the NASDAQ stock exchange. I joined, there was about 130 people in the company. 14 years later, when I left, I was running the European business, was about 25% of the company. The company had grown to $2 billion of sales, was worth about $20 billion on the NASDAQ stock exchange. So that was a very formative period of my career, you know, seeing how a technology company grows and scales and, you know, all the challenges and operating in a company that's listed on the stock exchange and living your life in those 90-day periods. It was just a sort of a fascinating growing up experience. I ended up in senior positions at a young age, ended up managing lots of people at a young age, did lots of things wrong, but luckily had some very good mentors and help and, and learned just a huge amount through that experience. It was was really having seen that had spent a little bit of time in the US but never actually moved there I think I worked out once I've spent five years of my life in Silicon Valley and never lived there it's not the most amazing place to live is it (laughs) well I like the UK I like the warm beer and stuff like that so it was that experience that really said gosh we should be able to do that type of thing here in the UK we've got the talent and the venture community was growing and so the capital was starting to be available and so together with four other people we started a business called ICIRA which developed a new kind of processor that went into mobile phones to support 2G, 3G and then ultimately 4G networking communications and it was a very innovative and the company grew we got to about 70 million dollars in sales we were making great progress very competitive against a big US company called Qualcomm. Then the 2008 financial crisis hit. The funding side became a bit harder and we ended up thinking that the right thing to do for the business was actually to sell and combine the business with a larger business. And we had a couple of offers, one of which was from NVIDIA and we ended up selling the business. But again, that was another huge learning experience, you know, having founded a company. It's amazing when your whole company fits in a car and you can take the whole company to go and see a customer. It's a quite an interesting experience. You know, that business grew to 300 people and scaled very well. But it really sort of taught you that it's about talent and it's also about access to capital are really the things that allow you to build significant businesses. And it was really those formative experiences that then has led to GraphCore. How did you, just quickly before we come on to the story of GraphCore, how did you meet those four people that you were in the car with? Well, we always joke that the Prince of Wales introduced us. And I'll explain that because I was <laughs> I was working at Altera. I was approached by the Prince's Trust, who was setting up at the time what was called the Technology Leadership Group, which went on to raise about £10 million for the Prince's Trust and engaged tech companies to help mentor young disadvantaged people. And that was very rewarding. But it was through the Prince's Trust that I met first Dan Boland and then Simon Knowles, and we ended up forming ICERA together. So the joke always was that the Prince of Wales introduced us. Shows the convening power of the royal family and the government, <laughs> some of their 
So just on Graphcore, can you, because I always describe it as probably the best business you've never heard of because it's almost creating the rails, the Monday rails, the hardware that you're creating is involved in so many of the products and things that we use, but people just won't have come across it necessarily. So can you explain to us what the company does? Yeah, of course. My pat phrase here, and I'll trot it out again. For 75 years, we've told computers what to do step by step in a program. And now they're starting to learn from data. And that just makes a huge difference in terms of how microprocessors need to work to be able to support that very different approach to what can become intelligent machines will actually operate. And it's really that change that is at the root of GraphCore. We saw this trend happen. We were able to meet with many of the leading innovators who are working on some of these new AI breakthroughs from our experience in developing microprocessors, and particularly Simon Knowles, my co-founder in his background. We were able to see how you could construct a different type of microprocessor that would be suited to these new workloads, and in particular, the data structures that go on inside AI. And that ends up being fairly fundamental, we would hope, because AI will become a very, very significant feature of how the internet works, applications in the internet work, how back office automation works in banks. You can't write a program to tell a car how to navigate across London, but we might be able to teach an intelligent system how to do that. It's a big challenge, but we might be able to do that. But it's going to take different types of processes and different computing approaches to really make that happen. And so, you know, that is what we are doing at GraphCore. We're building that processor in the computer systems that are going to allow these innovators to make the next breakthroughs in AI. And that's one of the interesting aspects of what you're doing at GraphCore that I found when working at Downing Street and so on, we'd often get the line that you know we don't build things anymore. And actually, you are building something because you're building the chips that make this happen. It's just incredibly high end. And I see you've launched another new chip within the last year, the GC200. What do you think the impact of that can be? Because there's lots of talk about AI and the possibilities that it can change, but so few people actually really know what they're talking about when it comes to it. What do you see the impact of the next few years being? I think it is both overblown, but also underestimated. And let me, let me try and qualify that. I think there's lots of talk about, you know, how AI will change people's work environments, maybe replace people in different kind of work, et cetera. And that may happen. There was a time when there were lift operators who would make the lifts go up and down. We don't see many of those anymore. It's interesting, you know, in accounting, you know, people used to use paper and pencils to create spreadsheets, but now we have personal computers that do that. What's interesting is there's more people involved in accounting since the introduction of that tool than used to be employed with the paper and pencil approaches. So sometimes tools can actually help and create new opportunities, and sometimes they will replace what are dull and tedious work. And I think you know AI just is the same, but slightly on steroids in terms of what it will be able to do. It will allow us to solve problems that we couldn't solve. You know, look at some of the things that DeepMind has been doing recently with their AlphaFold algorithms and approaches where they've been able to work out how proteins fold. And that sounds very obscure, but think about a cancer cell and trying to deliver a drug to that cancer cell. A protein, if you can fold it in the right way, will attach to the cancer cell. It will engage with the receptors in the cancer cell. And then you stick a drug on the back of that protein and it will deliver that drug straight into the cancer cell. No 
side effects and will kill it. Because cancer is this sort of coverall term, there are many different types of cancer cells. You need lots of different types of proteins and foldings to be able to make that work. And AI may allow us to solve those kinds of problems and conventional computing approaches would just never allow that. It's extraordinary to think about the potential impacts of it. And obviously, there's a lot of people and some of the big technology companies rushing into the space as well. I mean, do you consider them customers or do you consider them rivals? Oh, no, they're they're customers. Again, thinking that through, take something like search on the internet. That's fundamentally a machine learning problem. It's an AI problem. And so it's almost existential to some of these big tech companies. If they don't do it and somebody else does, their business could be replaced, even though they're massive and seem impenetrable. And so that's why these companies are rushing to adopt AI, because they see that this just transforms their business. But that that's just the tip of the iceberg. I think there's so many other industries, banking, healthcare, as we talked about, both in drug discovery, but also in diagnostics, automotive, you know, the idea of driver aids and ultimately autonomous vehicles, both for people and for commercial vehicles and trains and, you know, all of these pieces of technology as well. And then all of the different applications in and around the internet. So there's just a massive set of applications here and all of those different pieces and different customers are people that we would engage with and could work with and where our IPU could help them. When you talk about the future, I know that you're very much a a techno-optimist in many interviews before you've referenced the case of a caveman bringing back a dog for the first time and somebody saying well, that's gonna that's gonna eat me and you know or that's gonna take my job etc and these are challenges that we've just faced throughout the years what are the jobs that you think could be created as a result of the changes that we're going to see with ai over the coming decades well i think that's the interesting thing isn't it i think there's going to be jobs created that we can't even imagine what they are. Going back to that idea of the caveman with this, the hunting dog that he's trained, it's a tool that helps us become more productive and more capable. And that is basically how we evolve and we move forward. And so I think it's just part of the natural process that we go through. And obviously there are dangers because there's lots of gray areas here. But, you know, I'm, as you say, I'm an optimist around this in terms of, you know, what can be done for good. It'll make jobs better. It will make jobs more interesting. It'll allow people to do things that they couldn't. You know, you take a small manufacturing company, you know, somewhere in the middle of the UK, perhaps with AI, they can have the design skills and capabilities that previously only a big company would have. And they could start to compete on a level playing field with some of the the really big companies around. And maybe they could bring in some automation that would allow them to get a quality of product that, you know, and, and an efficiency in building that product that you just couldn't achieve before and allows them then to compete on an international scale. And I think that's the kind of thing that what I call machine intelligence, you know, because once machine is intelligent, it's not artificial anymore. And I think that's always the challenge with artificial intelligence. You know, once it does something, people say, well, that's not so clever, but it actually the underlying technology is incredible that is allowing these things to happen. I think so much of it will come down to that from a public policy perspective. I've thought about this as well as how you educate people in using those tools. And you've seen this, like even with the internet over the last 15 years, you've had this huge democratization of information. And, you know, an Oxford Don has the same access to information now that that anyone does almost, but he or she knows how to use that information in the best 
possible way and therefore they're actually able to extrapolate their career even further and quicker so even though access to things are the same it's that knowledge of how to use it will be the real challenge and i guess if nigel toome was in his formative years now what would you be saying what would your advice to you be in terms of how to make the most of the all the abundance of opportunities that are coming down the track that is a hard one. I think in terms of thinking about how you're going to be um, successful in this world, and that's maybe what I would be trying to help my younger self think through, a lot of the fundamentals don't change. You know, a lot of it is about having those core skills. You know, if you're in science and technology, you know, the maths is the language that you still need. So all of that, I think, doesn't go away. It's really then, as you were saying with your Oxford Don analogy, it's having the tools to be able to take advantage of this new technology and the rapid rate of change that is going to come. You know, I think we all need to accept that you can't just learn once and that's it. You know, we're going to need to continue to adapt and change and evolve. And I think that is really the key. That's kind of been my career because I've been in the middle of this semiconductor revolution and Moore's law that has kind of grown up around me and this sort of massive change in the internet and mobile communications and, you know, all of these pieces. And it's just so much fun being part of that rapidly changing environment. And I think it's just going to continue. I think that's true. It's trying to put yourself in those information flows and be at the front of things. And like you say, going to the valley at a young age must have been quite an experience to kind of see that world as well. And that's the great opportunity now as well is that people have access to all these information and, and can see these things. But it is about knowing where to go for it. Innovate. My view of it is innovation comes from seeing across boundaries. It's seeing how a technology can solve a problem for a customer, or it's seeing how some new material can be applied to in some new and interesting way. And people who can do that tend to have both a deep understanding of the underlying fundamentals, but they have that sort of broader ability to see across those boundaries. And I think that's the piece that is important. You see a lot of people who have a super superficial understanding, but they can't really work out what the solution is. And it's those people who can combine that broader understanding with the underlying skills who can really make a massive difference. I think that's a very good point. And that is so much of where innovation comes from is that cross-pollination of ideas and so on. So can I ask you an interesting, I say controversial, but it's not really controversial. It's more of a going against the grain. There's been a theory with the pandemic that we've seen five years of change within the space of a few months and so on. But I actually think the long-term innovation of this, it could be hampered because actually you haven't had the cross-pollination between companies as much as you would normally see. And so I actually think that there might be a bit of a struggle over the next few years because people have been working at home and you haven't had those ideas spark off each other i'd love to hear your kind of reflections on remote working you know when i was at number 10 we would talk about the potential impact of brexit and your number one concern being we need to have access to talent in an interesting way that's been flattened as well potentially now as well because actually people can work from home from anywhere and so i'd just be interested in your thoughts on that in terms of the impact of remote working and whether we might actually see a bit less innovation in the next few years because we haven't had that cross-pollination there's an interesting analogy, perhaps if you go back to something, you know, we tend to probably overdo in the UK, you know, thinking about the war, you know, would the jet engine have happened outside of a war scenario? Would it have been accelerated at the pace that it ultimately got developed and produced? 
at. And I think there are, there are two arguments to that. One is that, you know, there was an impetus for people wanting that innovation and change and looking for new solutions. But it was probably also held back exactly as you say, because there wasn't that free flow of information that would allow the difficult problems to be solved. Once you've got the concept in place, it's then all down to the details of getting the right materials and making them come together in the right way. That's really what drives a lot of these breakthroughs. So I think there's a real balancing act here, where as you say, people have learned new ways of working, some of which are quite successful. And we've probably also worked out what we miss about the way we worked before. There's been some good collaboration, you know, the Zoom and, and things like that have allowed us to connect with people around the world. But equally, some of that face-to-face, -face, just round a whiteboard, talking through ideas, that's really missing. You know, the informal communication has really suffered. You know, the formal stuff is fine, but it's that sort of ad hoc informal communication and the spontaneous conversations that sometimes are the real seeds of incredible spark of innovation. Yeah, I think that's really, really interesting. And what roles as a result are GraphCore hiring for now? What is the thing that you are always looking for? We're in a big expansion phase in the business. We've got about 450 people in the company today. We're looking to add, you know, 200 people or more during the course of this year. Software engineers, people, particularly software engineers that have got some sort of mathematical understanding and background, you know, those are sort of really the core key skills for us. There's obviously hardware and silicon engineers, the limited talent pool of those, but we want to attract the best that exist. And then as the company grows, you know, some of the other functions around sales, and marketing, finance, building compliance structures. We're building out in our legal department, driving patents, all of the stuff that bigger companies end up doing. It's a really interesting point. Hayden Wood from Bulb has made it before on the podcast that they almost employ a thousand people now as a renewable energy company, but actually they don't have necessarily that many people with renewable energy skills or backgrounds or even energy for that matter. So if you were wanting to join the GraphCore rocket ship, what would be, and you didn't have those deep technical sort of software engineering skills, what would be the type of thing that you would advise someone to be doing? Would it be that marketing sales side of things? That's one area, but, you know, just some of the sort of more general and administrative pieces, you know, are important project management. There's lots of interesting areas. The reality is, though, for us, probably over 70% of our team are highly technical. And, and what's interesting for us as well is AI is something very new. And you can't just go out and find thousands of people who've got experience in AI. So again, it comes back to those fundamental skills of people who've got good coding expertise, good maths understanding, who can pick this stuff up. We've been very successful hiring people, for example, who in the past have worked on designing wings for aircraft, where fluid dynamics and the linear algebra associated with that turns out to be quite similar to some of the maths that you need in AI or people who've been involved in communications theory. And again, you know, some of the probabilistic thinking is, is quite similar to what you might need in terms of thinking through AI problems as well. So even in the technical space, it's about reusing your skills in different ways. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And it's amazing companies like your own that are doing a lot of this deep technical expertise require a whole spectrum of skills that, that sometimes isn't perhaps yeah. explained as clearly, which is some of those soft skills, you know, sometimes what you find is, you know, some of our best engineers, you, you sort of worry sometimes because they're so into their technology. And, you know, you also need people who can build teams and can manage and can help 
build and drive the culture in the company as well. So we always say we make the company better by hiring people who are better than us. But we also make the company better by hiring people who are different from us. And by different, we mean people who bring different skills, come from different diversity backgrounds, grew up in different environments. Because people who have that different thought process think about problems in different ways. You know, that really adds to the whole culture of how sometimes you solve problems, even the quite fundamental things inside the business of just making stuff work around shipping products or creating the people organization etc. So it's really about having that huge diversity of skills. And I think, you know, as we talked about before, you know, that's one of the challenges, I think, around Brexit is you need to make sure that you don't end up with some sort of monoculture. You want to maintain that really broad, diverse group of people all working together, because that will just create better outcomes. We'll come on to the government in a moment. But I was also just keen to touch on Bristol and the fact that there are three universities there. And I just wondered if you could Explain the advantages of Bristol and why you partly set up a company there. We set up there because there is a very strong talent pool of engineers who know how to design microprocessors, which interestingly does go back many years ago. The UK government helped to fund a business called Inmos that ended up designing microprocessors. It became part of ST Microelectronics and trained a whole generation of engineers in the real key underlying skills. And we still take from that talent pool and we're training next generations of people around that. Bristol has a really strong base of those technical skills. It has a great base of software skills. It has lots of media expertise. It's a great place to live in the Southwest. People really like it. It's a young, vibrant city. I think it's a really good spot for growing and building a business like Graphcore. It's not down the road from you know some of these big tech companies that are hoovering up everybody left, right, and center. So we are an attractive option for people both to move to Bristol for and also people in Bristol to come and, and want to work for us as well. Absolutely. I can completely see that. It's an amazing place. We talked about back at the London Tech Week in 2019, some of the challenges of growing a company in the UK as a whole, not just Bristol, but one of these being around access to capital markets. And you know, you've taken funding from Sequoia and they flew to kind of see you, which is an incredible story. I also wondered what you thought of the the government has just announced a review of listings on stock markets and so on. And I just wondered, I know that you've talked publicly before about your hope for Graphcore being that you'll be able to list on public markets at, at some point. I wonder whether that, that review would be more likely the kind of dual structure that they've floated in that, whether that would make you more likely to float in the UK? Obviously, we remain open to think about where and what would be the right market for us. You know, it's about access to capital and London is a great place for that. New York is a great place for that. What has been proposed by the Jonathan Hill report is all incredibly positive. The dual class piece, you know, that affects some companies. I'm not hung up about that piece per se. I think it's more about, you know, some of the issues around being able to have access to have the right conversations with investors, you know, some of the thinking around this whole phenomenon with SPACs at the moment, special purpose acquisition companies, which have become a big feature of scaling businesses in the US, you know, changing the rules to allow for those, I think is important as well to be able to support growing companies and give them the right access to capital. And all of those things seem to be covered in the report. So I think it's just a question of time. How quickly does it get rolled out? Does it actually end up being enacted in the way that it was described in the report? 
that will be a challenge how quickly government can move on it. We do have a lot of politicians and cabinet ministers listening to this show. If you could give them some advice and some pearls of wisdom, what would it be for the future? Because it's a huge moment for the country post-Brexit, post-COVID, and the policy areas, as you've alluded to previously, can be so important in terms of business growth. What would you be saying to them? It's interesting. I've been thinking a little bit about this, actually. I've had some conversations with a few interesting people along these lines. You need to be careful you don't fall into a trap of trying to react to things, because then it becomes very difficult to make the right decisions and even involve the right people in those decisions because of the conflict of interest, because you end up doing tactical decision making all the time. I think what government needs to think through is that longer term strategic thinking, putting those frameworks in place that provide a direction that hopefully subsequent governments would follow because they're just sensibly thought through. And in those strategic conversations and in those strategic frameworks, you can involve people with the right skills because they're not making tactical decisions where they might have a conflict of interest. They're much more driven around you know, doing the right thing. So I think it's thinking about putting those strategic frameworks in place and some of those sort of big challenge pieces. And I don't know, people always look back to the moonshot stuff, you know, it's where the phrase moonshot comes from. Back in the 60s, when America said they were going to put a man on the moon, and Silicon Valley came out of that really for in the US. You pulled together academics and industry to solve some of the difficult problems. And I'm not suggesting that we should go put a man on the moon or anything, but it's about having those strategic frameworks and some of those moonshot approaches, perhaps around renewable energies, perhaps around quantum computing, around AI. And we build some strategic frameworks that allow us to create the right talent base, for example, around some of those issues. Thanks, Nigel. That's such a interesting answer on that. I just wondered, for somebody that wanted to understand the future and the potential impacts that were coming down the line, is there a book that you would particularly recommend reading or even a podcast series or or somewhere where people can go and understand more about what the future holds? Oh gosh, I don't know if I've got a great book. Uh, most of the futurist books I read, I find full of nonsense, to be honest. The thing I'm reading at the moment, actually, is going completely the other direction. I'm reading about history quite a lot, because I think we learn quite a lot from history. And the book I've found fascinating recently was a book by Michael Woods called A History of China, and understanding China and where China comes from and the different evolution now, I think is really interesting in this sort of geopolitical world that we live in, you know, trying to put yourself in their shoes and understand their history, which is not something I ever learned at school. And it's fascinating when you look at that, actually, try and see things a bit more from their perspective, you get a much better understanding of where they are, perhaps why they're doing some of the things they are, or approaching problems in in the way that they do. So I've found that to be a really interesting thing. Well, that is fascinating. I will check that out. And it is interesting that we are at this geopolitical moment. It feels in terms of the world is reorientating itself, the rise against populism and all these things that perhaps started in 2016 and have shifted. You have an office in Beijing as well. What are the opportunities of more UK companies looking east? Yeah, we tend to have largely looked towards the west and east in terms of of the EU, but there is an amazing opportunity as the world becomes more democratised more open. What are the big opportunities you see engaging with Asia? 
through the whole Brexit process, we wanted to have sovereignty. We need to be careful that we don't swap a link to the EU with just a, a link to the US. And we've somehow got to carve out a role, I think, as UK, as being able to look both East and West and have great relationships with North America, have great relationships with Europe, and also have great relationships into Asia. And that's probably one of the big opportunities we have around Brexit and not something that, that we should waste. I mean, I am quite optimistic on this side of things, because I think if you look at the regulatory blocks in the world, you've got North America, you've got China, and you've got the EU. And the challenge when you're competing with these areas is the velocity of capital is enormous in the US, as we've talked about. It'd be difficult to challenge that. China is a very big market size. And again, we won't be able to compete with that. But there is an opportunity, I think, for the UK, because even the most ardent supporter of the European Union would admit to it not being a fleet of foot institution having to get 27 people to agree to things, is that actually the UK can be a trusted partner for all of those places, given our history and so on. And I think that is where the opportunity lies in Brexit in terms of the ability to be quicker with regulatory innovation could be a massive opportunity if we can take hold of it. It's going to be a muscle strength that, as a country and as a system that we're going to have to learn to develop again. But I think it's a really big opportunity. You kind of look at what happens in fintech over the last 10 years, and I think that's a big opportunity that could be replicated in lots of different sectors where low-level regulation really helped sectors flourish early. I think the counter to what you just said, look at what's happened recently around communications infrastructure, 5G infrastructure, and we as the UK do a security review and decide that it's okay to have Huawei equipment at the antenna end, at the radio head end in our 5G networks. And then the US says, no, we don't want you to do that. And we change. We've got to find a way to create not just national sovereignty, but digital sovereignty as well. And, you know, it's going to be a difficult path to walk. I agree with you. There's a huge opportunity there, but it's also quite a challenge because you're then quite lonely if you're not careful trying to tread that path. I agree. Hopefully we can do this in person later in the year at some stage. That would be great. We, could, we, we could almost, we can probably do an entire episode on kind of digital sovereignty versus national sovereignty. Thanks so much for coming on. That's been a really great session. And I hope it's given lots of inspiration to people in their careers about some of the amazing companies that we have in the UK. So thanks very much for coming on, Nigel. Thank you, Jimmy. That was great. Really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Finally, in series two, I'm going to use this last section to let you know about some of the different work and social mobility enterprises I support. I had many memorable meetings in Downing Street, some for good, some bad, some completely and utterly bizarre. But perhaps the one that moved me most was David Schutz, who came in to see me about his work charity Astros. David has been the chief engineer of HMS Daring, which is the Royal Navy's most technologically advanced warship. David had been diagnosed with cancer, which meant he was unable to continue with full-time work. However, he didn't want to be known as David the cancer sufferer, and he still wanted to be able to work, even if it wasn't going to be full-time. After all, work provides a sense of purpose, identity, and so often camaraderie. When you consider there are 900,000 people of working age suffering from cancer alone in the UK, there is an invisible talent pool of ill and disabled people that runs into the millions. David, unfortunately, has since passed away, but the charity Astrid is now being run by his brother, Steve Schutz, and is growing at a rapid rate as it looks to help millions of people get into fulfilling work. I'm proud to be an ambassador for the charity, so please, if you're an employer who needs some flexible talent, or someone you know that might be ill that wants an understanding employer, it is worth checking them out. Further links to Astrid are in the show notes. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. The mission of this podcast is to help inform people about fantastic jobs that are being created and trying to present that information in an as accessible format as possible. I'd therefore really appreciate it if you could send this episode to someone who you think might find it useful and interesting. It doesn't just have to be for them. It could be that they work at school, college, or they're just interested in the future of our economy. If you could rate us on iTunes, that would be great. And of course, we are on social media platforms at Jimmy's Jobs. Thanks to the team at Particle 6 for their editing skills and thanks to George Dick Cleland for the artwork.